You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, it's Max, and uh, before the show starts, I have a favor to ask. If you don't mind, if you enjoy the show, uh, would you just go on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review or uh, a rating? It's very helpful. It helps other people find the show. I know if you listen to podcasts, you hear people ask for this all the time. We don't ask for it very often, but uh, I would just think it, maybe you could do it this week. I don't know. It'd be, uh, it'd be a nice thing to do if you, if you felt like it, which is why I'm asking. Okay, here's the show. Hello, and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff. I'm here with Aaron Lammer and Max Linsky. Hey. Hey, you guys. Evan, who's on the program? This week, I talked to my friend Paige Williams. Uh, I've known Paige for a while. She is a longtime magazine writer. She's been through uh, a variety of stages in her career in which she's edited magazines. She's written for magazines. She won a National Magazine Award for her feature writing. Uh, she's also taught. She currently has a book out, which is fantastic, called The Dinosaur Artist. And we talked a good bit about that. She's a staff writer for The New Yorker now. We talked about that. And uh, I really had a good time talking to her. Wait, this book is about the dinosaur bone market, right? This is about like people stealing, buying, selling, faking dinosaur bones? Yeah. I'm sold. Yeah. If you should, I'll lend you my copy. Thank you. Thank now you. you should buy one. Okay, I will. Lammer trying to sling those dinosaur bones. <laughs> <laughs> What's up with the dinosaur bone market these days? So it's not like a how to. She, does she have any like deals she knows about? <laughs> she knows a lot about how to report out and write along stories, and she's a she's a wonderful writer. So it's a great episode. Paige Williams right up there on those names that like. How has this person not been on a podcast yet? Paige Williams All Stars. If you've got an interest like dinosaur bones uh, and you want to share it with uh, the people out there in the world who share that interest at a hobby or professional trader level you need an email newsletter no one makes it easier than MailChimp uh, I find it greatly pleasurable every time I log into their interface it's simple it's fun and it doesn't make it feel like a chore to send out the email newsletter every week so thank you MailChimp now here's Evan with Paige Williams. Paige Williams, I cannot believe you are on this podcast. Finally, <laughs> after all these years. I'm glad that we didn't do it before. Although if we'd done it before, we could just do it again. But it's so much more fun to do it with the book 
out than before the book was out. I have the book. My microphone is sitting upon the book. One thing that occurs to me is that you are currently living in a very strange world of, you had told me that you had a story coming out in The New Yorker. And you were like, let's tape this after my story comes out in The New Yorker. And you didn't say what it was. <laughs> right. And you have a very eclectic set of interests and ability to write about a wide range of things. So I had no idea what it was. But I kind of, just because I was reading the book, I kind of assumed that maybe it was science related or or even dinosaur related or <laughs> something. Maybe even it was an excerpt, although the original story did appear in The New Yorker. Right, anyway, right. and then the story came out and it's a profile of Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Uh-huh. And then it just, to me, you're like living in the most modern newsy moment with that. And then like literally in like a paleontological world discussing your book. And I'm, I'm wondering how you're keeping those things in your head right now. Maybe, I, maybe I'm not. Maybe they fly right out. And uh, it feels right in a way because I've always been a generalist. I've always been someone who values and who was told to value in newspaper days range. Um, it's good to be able to write about lots of different things and to report on lots of different things. So that was part of how the book came up. And then also uh, part of how Sanders came up, that was an assigned piece. As in, I didn't go in with that idea that it was mentioned to me. And, and this was before the Red Hen incident. This was before the White House Correspondents Association uh, yeah. dinner. It was before she had worldwide, I guess, or at least domestic uh, U.S. name recognition. So that posed a little bit of a problem in that suddenly everybody was profiling her. And, and Yeah, this was like 10,000 <laughs> news cycles ago. That you started. It was in geological. Let's just mesh the two. In geological (laughs) (laughs) terms, it was, it was quite a while ago, and it was hard to sort of stay calm while news was breaking around her all the time, and think, okay, now what's the, what's the story that we can do that nobody else is going to be doing, and that we can do deeper and hopefully better. And when you when they brought you that assignment, were you immediately? Did it immediately? grab you? Did you think, yeah. yeah, this is something I can do? Yeah, for a few reasons. I mean, she's the spokesperson for the Trump administration. She's the face of the Trump administration other than Trump. She has influence with the president. She is very well liked by her colleagues, which is a rare and bizarre thing in the White House and the West Wing in particular. Mm. And she's very well liked among journalists, believe it or not. Like the backstage Sarah Sanders is very different from the cam- on-camera Sarah Sanders. And I I thought that juxtaposition or that dichotomy is really interesting and worth exploring. And then she's from Arkansas and I'm from Mississippi. And you get this being from Atlanta that I mean, there's just something interesting there about how one comes to that particular position of influence and power from Arkansas. I wondered when I read it, how much of a role that played in you getting her to talk to you. I mean, she didn't do much on the record from what I could see, but she did cooperate to some level and family members seemed to have. At one point she said, this is going to happen whether I like it or not, right? And I was like, yeah, (laughs) it's going to happen whether you like it or not. So, I mean, you know, she wisely participated as much as she felt she could, I think. But at first she said, you know, she said, no, 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 never. It's never going to happen. I hung out in the White House and to no avail is never going to happen. And then I happened to be at home for my niece's high school graduation in Tupelo and just said, I'm going to go over to Arkansas and just hang out there and spend some time and get to know the family and see what I can see. And it was after that that she came around a little bit. I don't want to make it sound like she was ever welcoming. She wasn't. She's, Mm. you know, she held pretty firm to her desire to 
as she likes to say, what is her phrase? Um, state policy, not make policy. And the same thing applies to like speaking. She just wants to speak for the president and not be known in any other way, which is wishful thinking when you're in that position. You're a public figure. Her husband likes to say she was never elected to anything. No one should be looking at her for anything, which is just untrue. If you're the spokesperson for the president of the United States, you're going to be, I think it was Chris Cuomo who said to her one day on air, you're going to be scrutinized. This is part of your job. So that's Seems like that would always be true, but this particular administration doesn't understand hundred times more. A lot of, the way a lot of things work, <laughs> journalism yeah. in particular. <laughs> yeah. So part of the reason I wanted to juxtapose those things, the book and sort of like dipping into the maelstrom of the news cycle, yeah. and we'll talk about the book in more depth, but you are this generalist in terms of like the voraciousness of your interests from what I can see from your pieces. And I'm curious what, in terms of your approach, I mean, it's a totally different piece to like go find, you know, someone who's committed a crime and try to get them to talk to you about it as you've done in the book versus like profiling someone who maybe wasn't as high profile when you started, but then, and do you view those skills as sort of all the same skill or do you feel like you have a subset of skills that you developed for different types of stories? That's a really good question. I think it's all the same thing. Well, I think it's two things. I think it's all the same thing in that you are at the bottom of everything talking about people and talking to people and you're trying to get close to them or get interested in them because of whatever it is they've done or they're doing or they're interested in doing, whatever worldview they may have. It's just never about the facts of something. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. um, and then the other thing, um, the second part of that is, I think you do have to adjust your approach depending on the sensitivity of the story. So if you're dealing with traumatized people, for example, you want to go into that in a very different way than you would go into, say, an antagonistic interview where somebody's going to be... Uh, trying to hide something from you or trying to spin you or deflect in some way. So it's sort of case-specific, right, mm -hmm. story by story. But I think for me as a reporter and as a human being, at the base of it, I'm just interested in this person and what they're up to. Well, that's reminiscent of a review of your book that came out in the New York Times today. Today or was yesterday? It, it was yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's, I mean, at the heart of the review was something I thought when I was reading the book, which is this book is fundamentally not like a dinosaur book. It's called The Dinosaur Artist, but it's actually about these people who are caught up in this world and their human experiences. In this crazy world. If, if You know, it's about a lot of different things. I mean, I found it interesting to report and to write because it had so many threads that I thought were worth pursuing. So you had the... You had a very ordinary guy doing a very extraordinary thing in pursuing a succession of fossils, meaning starting out with shark teeth, moving up to megafauna like giant ground sloths 20 feet tall and armadillos the size of a car, and then deciding that he needed to go even bigger and to get into dinosaurs. And the dinosaurs in the United States are hard to get into because that land is already taken mm -hmm. for the most part. Paleontologists mm -hmm. are working it for one thing, and then commercial dealers are working it. So there's that sort of competition for those dinosaur lands. And so the easy 
go-to was, um, I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but the easy go-to was the marketplace, and in this case, the black market for dinosaur bones coming out of the Gobi Desert of Mongolia. I feel like this guy, Eric, he, he's an enigma, but he's also like, in some <laughs> yes. ways, he's like the kid who's like, childhood hobby just metastasized into something else. Yeah, and Prokopi, Eric Prokopi is his name, and the reason, again, not to spoil it, but the reason he ended up going the route that he went, there were marital reasons, there were financial reasons, there were issues maybe of, I don't know if it's right to call it ego, but he wanted a bigger challenge. He wanted to be known for being among his peers, not known. He didn't want to be famous. He's not that kind of person. But he wanted to be known as somebody who could do these big jobs. And Everybody wants to be at the top of their field. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And he wanted to sell to museums. And he wanted to have his pieces, his reconstructions, dinosaurs, or what have you, in museums so that he could take his kids around to see, here's what daddy did. And then... On the Mongolian side, it was the same thing. There was a guy who saw an opportunity and he took it as communism was falling in Mongolia around 1990. And as that clash of, it's so bizarre. I never expected the story to take me into that in sort of the geopolitical area of Russia, China, Mongolia, the United States. and it's so insane. And North Korea, hello. I mean, it's, <laughs> you know, it's, it was unexpected, but also delicious. And, and there may be more of that than people want. Like, I, I, you know, my editor at one point was like, why are you so obsessed with this part of the story? I was like, I don't know. I mean, it just feels interesting to me. And of the moment. I mean, China and Russia is our news right now. Yeah. You know, and North Korea too, for that yeah. matter. So doesn't it behoove us to look at these relationships and to understand the diplomatic history between the United States and Mongolia in particular? Yeah. I love those little like rivulets of knowledge that you gain as you're going along. There's a sneaky like it's almost like a sneaky housing crisis part of it too. Like they're like flipping houses. Yeah. And it's not like you go into that. But there were all these sort of like themes that it hits on that if you said like, it's a story about a man who stole some dinosaur bones. <laughs> right. Like, nah. Well, yeah. And to me, <laughs> I was interested in more than I love true crime. And I, as you know, we've long talked about this. And and so that would have been fine and enough. But I thought it was more than that. I just kept seeing more context for it. And the context to me is important. And there's a point that you have to cut yourself off. I could have kept going and they were, I think, about to murder me uh, if I didn't hurry up and just get it in. But I could report something for, you know, ever. Yeah. Never start writing. And did they actually cut you off? Or Oh, yeah. Like, what kind of pressure did they yield in order to do that? Hmm. Well, a guy showed up at my house late one night with a bat. (laughs) Give me the manuscript. Give it to me. But I had a very lovely editor named Michelle Howery at Hachette who just had a, a nice way of getting on the phone and saying, mm-hmm, we, yeah, I, that's fascinating what you found out about um, the market economy in Ulaanbaatar, but we really don't care and we need this now. And, um, and there were deadlines that came and went and that's not like me like I don't if I have a deadline I try to make it mm-hmm. and I try to meet it but if I tell an editor though that I think this bears a little more scrutiny or if I need a little bit longer there's usually a good reason it's not me I don't take days off I mean it's not me sitting around going I think I'm gonna go to the beach today mm-hmm. there are no days I haven't off. known you to be a no. person who didn't work very hard <laughs> right 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 and maybe Maybe the answer lies in working a little less hard, but I just, it's what we do, right? And I can't imagine not doing, it's like being on the clock all the time. 
in the most wonderful way. I can't imagine not being on the clock 24-7. It's literally all I think about. And maybe that makes me a boring person or a one-dimensional person, but but I care very much about it, and I care about getting it right, and it takes it takes time. Hey, it's Max. I'm going to put Evan and Paige on hold for just a second. Tell you a little bit about some sponsors that are making today's show possible. First up, uh, our very close friends. That's Scoggin. Scoggin is a watch company, and it's inspired by uh, the Danes, a.k.a. the happiest people on Earth. And when you take a closer look, it's easy to see why those folks are so happy. Their culture focuses on uh, what's meaningful being part of a community, making time for relationships, living in the moment. Scoggin's minimalist design reflects this less is more lifestyle. And uh, they've got these men's watches, women's watches, jewelry, even smart watches in a variety of styles. And they create styles driven by their guiding principle, good design for better living. I've been wearing one of these Scoggin smart watches around and uh, it's great. It doesn't look like a... uh, goofy smartwatch you don't feel like a dingus walking around it looks great and uh it can do all these uh you know futuristic things it feels like you got the future on your wrist but nobody knows which is exactly what you're looking for in a smartwatch scoggin products look right any time of day anywhere in the world now or 10 years from now because simplicity isn't just beautiful it's versatile Visit Scoggin.com to get a special discount on your first purchase when you sign up for their emails. That's S-K-A-G-E-N.com. Thanks to them for sponsoring the show. We have uh, really enjoyed their support. You know who's been supporting this show for years? Squarespace. And that's the place to turn your dream into a reality. Squarespace makes it easier than ever to launch your passion project. Whether you're looking to start a new business, showcase your work, publish content, sell products... Whatever you want to do on the internets, Squarespace is the tool for you. With beautiful templates created by world-class designers and the ability to customize just about anything with a few clicks, you can easily make a beautiful website all by yourself. You don't need to know a uh, lick of code. Everything just works. They got e-commerce functionality so you can sell anything you want. Analytics so you know who's visiting and uh, how to keep them there for longer. Everything's optimized for mobile right out of the box. There's nothing to patch, nothing to upgrade. You really don't need to know how to build a website to build a website. It's pretty amazing when you think about it. If you do hit a snag, you won't. But if you do, they've got award-winning 24-7 customer support. Squarespace empowers millions of people from designers to lawyers, artists to gamers, even restaurants and gyms to turn great ideas into something real. Now is your chance to turn your great idea into something real. Go to squarespace.com longform for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code longform. You'll get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Again, that's squarespace.com longform, offer code longform. Thanks to Squarespace. Thanks to Scoggin. Let's get back to Evan and Paige. You very um, artfully not included yourself in this book. And I don't actually know at what point where you were when you found out about this. Like, you can't even tell. At certain points, I can tell you were following along. Like, you were there. And then other points, I think, well, this could be reconstructed or she could have been there. So I don't actually know. When did this idea first 
come to you? So I was sitting in a borrowed house in Gloucester, Massachusetts, after my semester. I teach also, as you know, and the semester just ended, and I was just miserable miserably in search of a book. I just have, you know this, I mean, for years and years and years, I was looking for the right project. And one lesson learned here is that if you spend all your life waiting for the right project to come along, you're just going to sit there your yeah. whole life. So I had noticed a dinosaur case years earlier in 2009 by reading the newspaper in my hometown of Tupelo, Mississippi. I was just sitting in a coffee shop and saw this thing about a Montana dinosaur thief and thought, oh, that's really interesting. I don't know anything about that. And I knew nothing about natural history, nothing about natural history museums. I was born and raised in Mississippi. We didn't talk about that kind of stuff and <laughs> grew up in the Baptist church. It certainly wasn't mentioned there. And um, <laughs> the earth wasn't even old enough to allow it. No, no, no. Um, and so I, it just was a world completely alien to me, which I love. I love going into worlds that I know nothing about, and I like to take them apart and put them back together again to see what they're about and to see who lives in those worlds and what they care about and why they're there. And it just seemed like a rich world. But anyway, that the case that, that was in the paper that day ended up not being the one worth pursuing. And then I found another one that ended up not being the one worth pursuing. And yet I spent spec money, like going out to Wyoming and Montana and South Dakota to watch the excavation of a juvenile T-Rex and then an adult T-Rex in another place. And No assignment. No assignment. No, I don't think I even pitched it at that point. I just didn't know what it was. Mm -hmm. I was just like, this is interesting. I'm going to go. And I took a photographer friend of mine to take photos thinking, oh, it could be multimedia. It could be an atavist piece. It could be anything. And um, that's expensive, you know, renting cars and staying in hotels or wherever you're staying. That fell apart. And I decided to drop it. And I went to that house in Gloucester to think about what to do with my life. Like, literally think about, do I need to, am I in the right place? Am I doing the right thing? Am I using what I know how to do in the right way? Am I, what am I doing? And how do I think strategically about this business that I love and this craft that, you know, is my life. And as I was sitting there, I'm not even kidding, this, I had set Google alerts for like dinosaur thief and dinosaur uh, <laughs> poacher and fossil poaching and fossil thief and all these things. And the Procopi case popped up. And I thought, oh, no, I'm, I'm done with this. I never want to hear the word dinosaur again, as long as I live. And I sh literally slammed the laptop shut. It's like, I'm not even looking at this. And then, of course, I looked at it. You're going to look at it. And I decided that I would call the Houston, Texas lawyer, Robert Painter, and ask him if anybody had contacted him yet. And I told myself that if nobody had contacted him, then it was wide open for me to do. Mm -hmm. And weirdly enough, nobody had. So it was wide open. And then at that point, you want to protect the story, right? You want to you want to make sure everybody's not running roughshod over it in some way. And it was covered extensively. But at that point, I started developing relationships with the different characters so that the story could be told, protected as I reported and wrote it. Mm -hmm. And that was the story I pitched to Daniel Zaleski at The New Yorker, my editor at The New Yorker. And at this point, was the case still open? Yeah. It was, yeah. Okay. Very much so. It yeah. wasn't, it wasn't, it was a civil case at that point and it had not even become a criminal case. So while I was reporting the piece, it became a criminal case. And he was arrested in the middle of it. Um, you know, handcuffed at home. And were you, you were already spending time with them at that point? I was already spending time with them. I was not there on the morning that they arrested him. 
I was there on the day you went to prison. I was there on the day you came out of prison. You're right. That was astute reading to see that some of it was observed and some of it was reconstructed. The other observed parts were like Mongolia with um, Dr. Bolor Minjin uh, driving around the Gobi Desert mm-hmm. in her New York City bus, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is something to see. Um, but I could also yeah. see in reading it why it was you didn't want to close it out yet because it's like there's more like yeah. there's there's places where you could end that book even earlier but then there's something more that's unresolved and then you, you keep chasing it and then you get it yeah yeah i just it didn't seem finished and uh, i'm not one of those reporters who needs to have everything wrapped up nicely with a you know this tidy ending, but more for me to stay interested, more did have to happen. And I didn't, it, it's not like that story ran and I then pitched it as a book. A year passed between the publication and so that was January 2013. And it wasn't until the summer of 2014 that I was like, okay, this is a book. I'm going to, oh. yeah. So oh. it wasn't like immediately let me try to parlay this into something. It wasn't like that at all. What I wanted to do was more magazine stories and get back to work. And it was only when he, when Prokopi was sentenced to prison that I thought, oh, that's interesting. He's, that was unexpected. Even the people who prosecuted him and who defended President Elbegdorge of Mongolia did not expect him to get jail time, much less prison time. He seems almost sorry about it. Like, the wish that they that Some they of them hadn't. were sorry about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and in the book, I don't know if you are going to read the four million pages of notes in the back, but um, they're there for a reason. And, or this may be in the epilogue, actually. The president of Mongolia conveyed through Robert Painter that he was sorry that this had happened and that he didn't mean for anybody to go to prison and that he just wanted the dinosaur back. <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel like that... Is it Prokopi? Yeah. Prokopi. Uh-huh. There's actually literally a passage in the book about how his name yeah. is mispronounced. <laughs> it's not Prokopi. It's not Prescopi. It's not Pocopsi. I mean, there are lots of <laughs> there are lots of interesting twists on the name. So the when it comes to the sort of human dimension, it seems like you got very close to. I don't mean close necessarily that you were close friends, although maybe that happened as well. But you got really up close to his life and relationships and his wife and things that went on there. And that really made me think about the reporting and decisions about what you could or couldn't put in or what was established at the beginning, saying like, look, anything goes or it was decided at the end. Yeah, the whole going into it, everybody knew anything goes. My notebook's always out. My recorder's always out. And there is that uncomfortable moment when you spend so much time with a family, especially a family with young children, like the kids you know, don't understand what you are and Mm -hmm. what, why you're there and why you're always holding a pen. And so they might run up and hug you when you get there. And what are you going to do? Swat the kids away and say, no, I'm a reporter. I can't be, can't be warm to you. I think it's important to be a person. There were times when Amanda, who's very friendly and- That's his wife. uh Uh-huh. First wife. Yeah. Very friendly and effervescent. She would say to the kids, "Oh, it's our friend Paige." And what are you going to do? Say, "I'm not your friend." But it, I made it clear that, like, I'm here to do a job, and as much as I may feel for what you're going through, I'm not here to get involved in it. So um, the expectations were always clear, and they were incredibly forthcoming and incredibly. As much as Prokopi can be open, open, he's a fairly reserved, as you can tell from the book, it made it challenging because he's such a reserved person. Mm-hmm. He doesn't talk on and on, which 
is both good and bad. I mean, it can be exhausting, but it's also um, you need him to say something, right? I mean, it's it was it was hard because yeah. he just you know has very has a very distinctive way of talking that made it difficult to do anything quickly. And you want to hear him out, you know. You don't want to talk over him or um, or just assume that he has nothing to say because he's being quiet. He's thinking about it. He's a thinker before he's a talker. And it must have been weird to them at the end for me just to suddenly go away because mm-hmm. I'd been back and forth, you know, first to Florida, then to Virginia, then now to Savannah is where they live now. Um, saw him in New York. You know, it's just I was I haunted their lives for four years, and. Amanda once told me that she was kind of glad of it because it gave Eric a distraction that he needed. So I don't know. Who knows? And did they understand when the book came out that all of that was going to be in there? Did you Mm -hmm. feel like when they read it or they understood what was in there, they were like, yeah, that's what we signed up for? Yep. I Uh, fact-checked it with them on one very, very, very long spurt of a trip to Savannah and it was exhausting <laughs> because I literally went page by page. And there were things in there that were painful to them that they didn't like hearing. And, you know, nobody, people rarely like seeing themselves in print, right, when it's all over and yeah. done with. I think that there were painful things, especially about the marriage and some of the things that happened. But Amanda has been a good, she's a good bookseller. <laughs> she's been selling. She's, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's amazing. I mean, she is quite a personality and is a lot of fun. And she's been selling it all over Facebook and giving it to friends. She's got a huge friendship circle in Gainesville. It's all the junior leaguers and they're all <laughs> reading yeah. it. I was and... born in Gainesville. I didn't know that. Yeah. I just lived there when I was a little kid. I don't really remember much Did you about live it, near but... Tom Petty? No, I, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Tom Petty enters this book in a bizarre way. <laughs> as, really and one thing I didn't put in the book was that on the day after Prokopi got out of prison, um, I went fossil hunting with him and his two children to this riverbank. I think it was the York River. It might have been the James River. I can't remember. It was drizzly and gray and cold. It was right before Christmas. And it was great. I mean, slick moss, bright green moss, still water, weird trees, lots of roots. It was cool. And we walked around for a while and picked up a couple of things because, as I was told, the riverbank is public domain. But we're walking off and there's a sign there that's like, property of Bruce Hornsby. And I was like, what What? are we doing on Bruce Hornsby's land? So he's a realtor, (laughs) apparently. Did you know that? Bruce Hornsby is a realtor? Well, that's what I asked. I was like, well, what is, is that the Bruce Hornsby? He said, yeah, that's the Bruce Hornsby. I was like, how do you, Could he be what? pulling your leg? I, just, I looked it I up Bruce late. Bruce Hornsby's doing pretty well. He's like tours with other bands and stuff, even though he's not as big as he was. I guess it's, his, it's the equivalent of Eli Manning buying the Papa John's. I don't know. <laughs> was it Eli that bought the Papa John's? Uh, or is it the other no, one? I think it's Peyton. I think Peyton. it's Peyton, it was Peyton. okay. I don't know if he bought, but I mean, he's like a spokesperson for Papa John's. Oh, I, I thought he bought like a franchise or something. Anyway, don't put misinformation out there in the world. <laughs> what I'm saying is <laughs> he, he maybe diversified. I don't really know. Smart. I know. But it's good waterfront property right there in uh, somewhere in Virginia, in some riverbank. I want to know how you, from a even just a process perspective, because I've dealt with this myself, so I'm very curious about it, the volume of information and the spread of information that you're dealing with in this book, there's a lot of sort of like paleontology, obviously, 
but there's also all this sort of politics, Mongolian politics, and there's family histories of various people. How did you organize information as you were going along? Like your bibliography is huge. You have a, a huge number of source notes. Like is this stuff just piled around your apartment? Like how, how did you <laughs> go about even deciding which routes to go down amidst all that? I tried really hard to make the Prokopi story the core narrative. That's the spine of the story, right? Mm -hmm. So I heard my Columbia colleague, Nick Lemon, describe this the other day with uh, regarding interviews. But I think this also applies to story structure and to organizing material. If you think of a tree trunk and then all these different branches that come off, um, you've got to start with this one main thing and figure out what all these other landing areas are. And so if I kept the Prokopi story as the backbone, all those other threads organically wound through it. And so I didn't feel that I could ignore it. Um, <laughs> there have been a couple of people who didn't necessarily want to see Mary Anning in this book. Mary Anning, the poor teenage fossil hunter from early 1900s coastal England down in Lyme Regis. Mm -hmm. She's my more cowbell. I mean, I think every paleontology book should have more Mary Anning because she was so unheralded and so um, treated so badly for her whole life and died poor and alone. And she had given men of science their name by her labors and by her dedication to what it is they were studying. She didn't just go to the beach and dig things up or find things and take them home and clean them. She wanted to know what the science was behind those things. And paleontology wouldn't exist the way it exists now without her. Yeah. So you can't tell the story without her. But it's not like a one-off because she left a legacy that includes now the business partner of Eric Prokopi. Mm -hmm. It was his... Uh, that's where he searches now, where Mary Anning used to search when she was a teenager, just trying to provide for her family. So that was a, to me, that was a clean dovetail. And know, it also felt like one of these, like the Times just did these like lost obits, like people yes, who should have had yeah, obits that yeah. never had them. And it kind of felt like that to me, like that you found this woman or like, what the fuck? This woman's not famous. Why is this woman not famous? Right. And she is to the the science world. She is to paleo geologists and paleontologists mm -hmm. and maybe to amateur collectors and people who are just fascinated with that world. But I just, the book is for a lay audience. You know, it's not for the person who already knows this stuff and is going to, um, I mean, hopefully it's for them too. But, and also there are very few women in the science. So here you had Mary Anning, whose name should be wider known, more widely known. And then you have, you know, Buller Mingen, who's a woman in a very difficult field and is actively pushed against in some ways by some members of her field. Um, so I just think if you can get, I didn't try to put more women in there just for the sake of more women. They are the story. Mm -hmm. um, can I back up for a second? Yeah. You asked about organization and like keeping track of material. Yes. Um, so... I always ask other writers that same question because I'm fascinated by how people work. The house was a hoarder situation for a little bit. <laughs> All that stuff lives in storage now, but um, it was stacks and stacks of books and papers and other documents, FOIA documents from the State Department, all that kind of stuff that comes in on paper, you know. Anything that was digital, if we're going to get, like, nerdy about it. I love it. <laughs> I know, me too. Um, I did Scrivener for the writing and I did Devin Think for the organization. Mm -hmm. What do you use? I have Scrivener for the writing and Evernote for the See, materials. I can't do Evernote. I can't go with it. Really? Uh-uh. Huh. Do you use the pen? No, no, no. I don't do that. I do use the scanner. I take pictures of things with my phone and then they get scanned and Evernote or like clipping everything from the web that hmm. gets automatically 
in there and then I have crazy tags and same. Like, <laughs> like it doesn't make you feel at the end like I could be like an archivist. Like I oh, could yeah. do that. I don't know how many jobs there are like that, but like maybe I should just do that. That to me was the most fun part. You know, I love that too. And like when you're doing your, have you done your index yet? Uh, no, I haven't done the, it's index the most. Yet. Well, it's the most fun. They won't let you do it. I begged to do my own index and they were like, you have literally lost your mind. Please stop. <laughs> Turn the book in. Please stop talking about the index. Well, also because you have to pay for it. So I was going to, did you have to pay for it? No. <sighs> what are you talking about? In most cases, including my own, the author has to pay for the index. <gasps> what? You should check and make sure they didn't just take it out of your money. But yeah, like some people are smart enough to write into the contract and I was not one of those people. Like specifically, like you pay for the index, not me. Wow. Yeah. No, nobody yeah. ever told me that. I mean, that's a deal breaker to me. Like at one point, my first editor, Michelle, left to go to a different publishing house midway through the book. So I lost my editor midway through um, and then got a wonderful editor named Paul Whitlatch. And uh, I think it was Michelle that I asked. She said at one point, Let's just don't do an index. That's like telling me, let's just don't put words in here. Let's don't put words in the book. Let's just have, let's just don't do it. I was like, you, no, that's, I, I quit. I quit. I'm not doing it. If you can't do it. I mean, the index is, is how you find things. Well, I can tell you that you would have thought of it differently if they came to you and said, do you want to do an index? You know, you have to pay for it. How you much might does it said, cost? I don't know yet. I think it's like $1,200. That is criminal. <laughs> Yeah. Well, okay. Well, that's interesting. I don't, I'll go back and check. You got a good deal. Maybe I did. And they sure did. You know, I mean, my little secret, and this was probably not okay. And I don't, I wouldn't do it again, obviously, just because it feels a little wrong. But, you know, there were swaths of the book that, that Michelle's like, no, cut, cut. These 20,000 words, please cut. So they became footnotes uh, <laughs> they, they went into the notes they can do them in smaller type yeah, yeah she said it's going to be microscopic people are going to need a, a magnifying glass to read it but i was like i don't care it's fine <laughs> because it's more context and and yes i it's important to make choices and i will do my next book differently probably in that respect but just the whole world like if you want it it's like bonus you get a, another half of a book on top <laughs> on top of this like the story itself is like fewer than 300 pages but then the notes is another 89 i think and just think of it as a second <laughs> as a bonus i guess i don't know okay so we've i want to go back because we sort of dropped in at you were in gloucester and then you came across this idea and then you're like i'll pitch it to the new yorker but now i feel like people need to understand how you got to the point where you could say, I'm going to pitch that to the New Yorker because you mm -hmm. lived several lives in this work uh, previous to that point. So let's start at the beginning, which is how did you get interested in journalism in the first place? Um, in college. So I went to Ole Miss and I had never, I had no concept of journalism. Nobody in my family was a writer or a reporter or a journalist or anything related to this field. They were all teachers and coaches hmm. and my dad owned a sporting goods store my mother was basketball coach and PE teacher and all my aunts and uncles and cousins all athletes and that's what we did we did sports and that was it and when I went to Ole Miss I, you know I'm still devastated by the fact that there were world-class writers there that I didn't even know about Barry Hanna was there mm. Willie Morris was there um 
Donna Tart had been there Whoa. some years before me, but she had spent, I think, a semester or a whole year at Ole Miss before Barry Hanna, I think, is the one who said, you need to go to Bennington and you need to be a writer and get out of here. Um, but I didn't know any of that. And I found journalism by flipping through the course catalog, and I liked the word. I don't even know how to explain what that means, but I was just like, what is this? What does it mean? What do I, I mean, I think... I think I always knew I was going to write, but I didn't know what that meant or how to do it or who to talk to or any of that. And Ole Miss is a very social school. It especially was back then. And so your attention was more on frat parties and uh, that kind of thing. I don't mean to sound like disparaging to frat parties. I'm sure they're fine. but I think you can disparage frat parties I think very they sh- freely I, I on think, this podcast. Well, yeah, well... We are we are currently in a national reckoning with frat parties in some ways, although I'm not sure oh, many that's people so are true. actually reckoning on. But well, there's reckoning to be done everywhere and oh, yeah. there for sure. And boy, I could tell you stories, but I won't. Not here. Um, but you know, I just the, the journalism part was really good at Ole Miss. It had some old uh, UPI guys, wire service guys, and editors, like actual working journalists who were taking a break from the field to teach. So it wasn't theory. It was all in practice. And I loved it and decided that that's what I wanted to do and started working summers first at the Tupelo Daily Journal, which is my hometown paper, and then at the Jackson Clarion Ledger, which is the largest paper in Mississippi. And that was the next summer. And uh, then I went back, finished you know my senior year and went to the Washington Post. That's not an easy thing to get right out of college, well, it's is it? a it's a reporting intern. Uh-huh. So you apply and your the understanding is that you'll be assigned to a, a beat. And I covered Alexandria and Arlington, Virginia, and was on the Metro desk and loved every second of it. Had no, I was v- a fish out of water in a big way. I was from Tupelo, Mississippi. I'd never been anywhere uh-huh. much or done anything, had... It was green, green, green. And, um, you know, one of our first luncheons was with Bob Woodward. And it was just like, I mean, how do you even process that? And other interns are from like the Miami Herald, the New York Times, and they're all asking him these intelligent questions. And I just absorbed it because what what can you really do? Um, I was way less aggressive than I am now, like as a reporter, I think, and as a person, I was maybe less confident back then, just didn't think I could sort of be in the room with with those folks without totally humiliating myself <laughs> but it was a great experience and from there I went to the Charlotte Observer for 10 years and covered everything covered all the things you're supposed to cover as a as I think snobbishly as a journalist I still believe newspapers the best way to start mm-hmm. and because you get to cover everything you're working with people who have done it themselves and who know how to go find documents, who know how to talk to people, who know how to do breaking news, who know what to do when a plane falls out of the sky, who know what to do when a hurricane hits. You know, all of that was crucial. And these were some of the best reporters anywhere. Mm -hmm. The the Observer had just won a couple of Pulitzers, one for bringing down the PTL, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. Oh, God. And another for, like, um, black lung. It's a black lung disease expert. Bose that was about people not being cared for after working in the cotton mills. Hmm. And that was way before my time, but it was recent enough that the paper was still gilded and like there was a shine on it and you were proud to be there. And it was a fabulous place to learn. I learned everything there. I mean, those were the people who who taught me and who were good role models and who believed in nurturing talent, but not coddling you in any way. 
but in giving you assignments that would help you get to where you wanted to go. And while I was at the, and but wherever that was, I didn't have any, like I talked to the New York Times, I talked to the LA Times. Uh-huh. Um, they both brought me in for extensive interviews and some other places I can't remember. Baltimore Sun at one point. In the middle of all that, I did an even fellowship at Harvard, and I think it was after that that I started thinking, do I want to go do something else? And were you thinking that because of sort of looking at the industry or your own personal, like, do I want to be a beat reporter? Or do I, I didn't want to be in daily news anymore. I mm-hmm. didn't want to run and gun anymore. I wanted to write magazine stories. And of course, The New Yorker was like the, for me, like the kingdom and the power. And some people may see an easy path to that kind of place. I didn't. I had no idea how to, like, I didn't know anybody. I didn't know, <laughs> like, what do you even do? Do you send in your clips? Do you, you know, report it out and find somebody who knows somebody who can get you a coffee with somebody? I just didn't know how to do it. Mm-hmm. So instead, I just started writing magazine-length pieces for the newspaper and writing talk-of-the-town type pieces for the newspaper, for the Charlotte Observer. And ended up selling a piece to Talk of the Town about some undiscovered rare books in the Vanderbilt Estate Library in Asheville. And that was fun. And it led me to believe that I could do it and Mm -hmm. that I had the right voice for it because it does require a specific, it's its own little art form, talk is. And, you know, in the middle of all this, there's some personal sadness and that my father died that kind of set things off in a weird direction I I went into teaching I decided to go teach for a while and try to figure out how to write magazine pieces and to write books and and stay out of daily news because Mm -hmm. I did not feel I enjoyed it I always enjoyed it but I wanted to go deeper I didn't want to go longer for length's sake. That wasn't, I mean, I know we're on the long form podcast, but it wasn't about writing at length for that, just for the sake of writing at length. It was about exploring a certain topic or person or story with depth and with care. And did you, when you were making that transition, I mean, you mentioned this sort of like talk of the town type voice. Did you feel like at that point, I have a voice that I know is going to go into these stories? Or were you sort of feeling around for what that would be. I think my newspaper voice was very different from any voice that I know now. It was lighter. It was choppier, I think. It was, it sounded like it had some hurry up behind it. And I think, you know, what I've had to do is modulate that voice a little bit, or what I've been happy to do actually is modulate that voice for a little bit. I mean, listen, some of that stuff was dreadfully overwritten and too sprightly and too cute just way too cute it was immature writing it was it was a writer trying to figure out who they were mm. and what their actual true voice is and so you you can look at it that way or you can just say oh god it's insufferable it's just too cute everybody so, has that <laughs> do they i say that i'm sure there are theoretical people out there who look at what they wrote when they were i don't know in yeah. their 20s and are sort yeah. of like i nailed it <laughs> <laughs> I don't personally know those people. I don't think. I don't know any of those people. I don't know any of those people. I'm certainly not one of those people. I mean, this is, I think it's best just to stay away from all those clip files. Stay out of that particular morgue. But wait, when did you go into the sort of like regional magazine? Yeah. So I started teaching, um, moved to Spain for a year, as you do when mm. you're when you're wanting to, you know, figure out. You see that I go to the water or I go to the place that's unfamiliar in order to figure out what to do. Um came back and started freelancing for 
how did I even do that? I don't even remember. Oh, I got an agent. And he was wonderful about getting, like, he got me a piece of men's journal. I can't remember what else. But it still didn't feel right. Like, I was still writing newspapery kind of magazine pieces, and I still hadn't cracked the code. Like, I was not a natural. I'm up the middle. You know, I'm not a natural come at this with your own point of view type of reporter. Mm-hmm. I'm, I believe in sort of laying it out and let the readers figure out what they think about it instead of having a very definitive take, like hot take is a phrase that I loathe because, you know, I'd rather just tell a story and let people figure it out on their own. So that was a little bit hard to figure out. And, and Men's Journal kindly let me try. I did a couple of small things for the New York Times magazine and was interested in doing more for the New York Times magazine. And Oh, I know what it was. I went to Columbia for uh, to get an MFA because I thought that if I had an MFA, that that would allow me writing time, mm. <laughs> that having a teaching job would both allow for health insurance and allow time to pursue magazine stories and books. But all that does is allow time for teaching, which is terribly time consuming. And then post-Columbia, there's what, a hundred grand in debt. So- yeah. You know, what do you do then? So you go, you take jobs. And that was when it, that's when I went to Atlanta. Ah, okay. The brilliant editor, Rebecca Burns, hired me as the executive editor of the magazine. And that allowed me to both edit and help run the magazine and also to write stories that I cared about. It was it was a city regional magazine that did great journalism. We did a whole package on MLK and his legacy in Atlanta, parts of it unfulfilled. And... It was sitting regional magazines, at least at that point, and maybe still now, I think are the best, uh, they're the hidden secret of American journalism because you can go and do these deeply reported stories and get space for them and get great art for them. And if you're in the right place, get great editing, which was the case with Rebecca. Yeah. You Um, wrote some amazing stories for Atlanta Magazine. You wrote my favorite appreciation of Waffle House that I've ever read. (laughs) Um, Oh, please don't put that in the show notes. Why? (laughs) I don't know. I don't remember what it was. It was good fun. It was just like, this is Waffle House. Waffle House, like you see Waffle House and you're like, is there a method to the madness of Waffle House? And the answer is yes. And I just reread it. You didn't. Yeah, did. Oh my god! And I that, haven't read that in ten years. Really? Um, I mean, the one I really wanted to talk about was—I'm going to get the title wrong—but angels. There are thousands of angels around. You have you, thousands of angels, which around. I had not read in a long time. I mean, I read it probably at the time, but probably not till it won the National Magazine Award. Right. It made me cry on the subway it did. just yesterday. You're kidding? Um, yeah, it's like—I mean, for one thing, it's like the perfect magazine story. It really is. It's got everything, and it's built in this way that it's like it's what a magazine story should be. Yeah. Um, but I had some questions about it. One of which was, it strikes me that I think for a lot of people who want to get into writing or creative fields, they have some things that they put out there, and they think when I get those things, then that'll be the time when I'll both like feel good about myself, and all the doors will open. Right. And I was just curious about. I mean, it's. Very rare, in my understanding, for a regional magazine story to win a national magazine award mm-hmm. for anything. I mean, they might win for, like, Best Package. Right. And Texas Monthly is kind of a weird exception. They win a lot of stuff. But, like, that was unusual, mm-hmm. generally. And also, like, for feature writing, it's just, like, such a coveted thing among writers. And in the magazine world's not as big a deal as people make it out to be, maybe. <laughs> right. But in that world. Yeah. And I'm just curious if that was one of those things for you that you thought... 
oh, now everything's going to happen for me. I'm never one of those people who really? thinks that ever yeah. for any reason. No, <laughs> whenever anything happens, no. Because I, I don't know. I just don't. I, I've never been the person who's like, I'm just waiting for my big break. You know, I don't. I just want to do good stories and do good work and keep doing good work and like love what I'm doing. And I remember being very. I didn't write for like years after that story. I was exhausted by that story. That mm-hmm. story, a good friend of mine died right in the middle of mm. the reporting, no, the writing of that piece. And that combined with the story itself, this sounds, I don't want this to sound, maybe this sounds weak, but that took it out of me for some reason. And I just, I went the other way. I didn't say, okay, now, you know, more, 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 more stories like this. I just, I went the other way and just kind of went underground for a while and I know you're looking at me like horrified. No, I'm like, not. No, I'm just uh, that I can understand. I mean, from the story, it's it's a very difficult story. But that's what we ways. do, right? I mean, we do. We we tell difficult stories. We talk about. We talk to people about the worst traumas of their lives, and then part of the job—that's the job—to absorb it and to take it and to uh, walk them through it as best you can without re-traumatizing them, and. And I don't know that it was the nature of the story that just sort of sent me the other way. I just remember feeling like, okay, I, I don't know about this. I might, I might not write anymore. Mm. I might not report anymore. Mm. And I was wrong, of course, because this is the only thing that I love to do. And, but it was years after that before I went back to reporting and writing. That story also really struck me because going back and reading it now in everything that's happening. I mean, it's about a refugee Mm -hmm. and who's experienced horrible trauma. We don't have to go into the whole backstory, but people should go find and read it. It's online. Um, And then gets resettled in Atlanta and like juxtaposing that with what's happening in immigration now, like it seemed like incredibly relevant to now. And it made me wonder if you know, like the story ends with her, people should read it so I don't spoil it but (laughs) like maybe going off to like succeed in you know the medical field or something but do you know what happened to her I do know what happened to her um she as far as I know we're not in touch I don't do you keep in touch with the people you write about never almost never me too and it's rare that I do because I feel like I've already imposed enough on their lives and you don't really you know it, it was a not a transactional thing but it was a I don't know. I feel funny about saying that because it sounds like you just discard people when you're done with them and after the reporting ends and the writing ends. But I don't know of a way to hold all that in one space without. Does that make sense? Yeah. Or to play that role. I mean, there are people I'm always like amazed when I hear people saying that they have collect all these people in their lives that remain in their lives, because I feel like even at the best, you're forming a function for them where they they are working out things by talking to you yes definitely and then i have had like a few times after the story comes out they want to do that more right and now you are sort of like well now we're in a different we can be friends now maybe, right but right i'm not the person who you just talk at anymore and then right. it's not that's not kind of what they want no like it's, it's kind of dissipates i think most people realize that the relationship necessarily runs its course and that you know you're not in it to become friends but all that to say that the last I checked on Cynthia, um, she's doing very well and was still in Atlanta. And I mean, to me, in some ways, that story feels more relevant now than it did 
whenever it ran, 2008 maybe? Seven, 2007. God, was that 10 years? 2007 or 2008, 10 years ago, yeah. That blows my mind. Yeah, it's um, like almost like uh, maybe they wouldn't care either way, but people who are making these decisions right now like should read something like that, you know, and understand the kind of people that are, when you reduce the number of people who can get asylum, like who you're talking about. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's, um, I don't know if it's a cautionary tale, but it's, uh, the right thing happened with her. Boy, she found it, she made her own way and very in a very tough way, and it worked out for her. I kind of wondered if you had thought about turning that into a book. I never did. Um, there have been a few pieces that I've written. Editor, book editors have come to me and said, "What about talking about this?" Not like here's here's my offer to you to turn this into a book, but let's explore this idea. Nobody did with that one. Somebody did with one that I wrote about, oh, the one about the accident that I wrote about, mm-hmm. which was about some uh, college friends. And it was an O. It an was. O and that was an editor who wanted to think about a book about grief. And I just couldn't, you know, we talked about it for a while and very smart editor, lovely editor, but I just couldn't imagine living in the grief space any longer mm-hmm. like it was I'm just done with grief and even if you bring some I don't know levity to it or something I just didn't want to live there so I didn't think about Cynthia I didn't think about this was the first one that really this dinosaur thing was the first one that felt viable to me and it felt like I could see it I could actually see it even though it wasn't fully reported or even though it required a lot more reporting um, than the story ended up requiring, it was the one that I could envision. Mm-hmm. I could see it very clearly. Mm-hmm. So just to com- sort of like complete the narrative, so you that story in Atlanta Magazine that sort of drove mm-hmm. you in certain ways away from writing. So yeah. then what pulled you back? Like what brings you back? Story and the work and the reporting and being interested in whatever it is that's happening. And, you know, to pay the bills and to pay rent, I don't want to make it sound like I love teaching most of the time. Uh, I love where I'm teaching right now, very definitely. But um, that was a way to stay solvent and to pay the bills and to to get, uh, in some cases, health insurance. But it's terribly time-consuming. So my to do it well, especially. Yeah, and I'm not going to half-ass it. I mean, it's just it, you can't if you're really staying on top of what it is you're trying to do with the students. You can't phone it in. So that took more time than I thought it would take. I thought I could teach and then write on the side or mm-hmm. or do it half and half. Um, so I didn't write as much as I thought I would write. But what got me back into it was, I don't know, talking to people like you. You know, when I did that Dolly Freed story, I forgot about that. It was oh, the yeah. Dolly Freed story mm-hmm. that I was like, here's a good story. And I thought that was a book. That's right. I thought that was it was the first sort of glimmer of come back, come back. Um, And I heard about Dolly Freed, the survivalist, I guess is what you would call her. Mm -hmm. And she had written a book called Possum Living in the 70s. And I just thought she was a good story and pitched it around and didn't get anywhere with it. Thought about it as a book. Didn't really know how to pitch a book or anybody in that world to, you know, float things with. And that went nowhere. But I did, I published it on my own <laughs> website. Yeah. Because um, this was pre Atavis. It right. was pre. It was right kind of when we were thinking about starting it and we were looking at all these examples. And that was one that. Yeah. I, I think that's the timing of it. I wasn't even on Twitter. Like I was, you know, there was, it, I don't even remember what year it was, 2010 maybe. 
And I was like, you know, it would be fun just to see if I can do this on my own and then PayPal it, like say, if you like this, pay me. And I don't think anybody had done it. And so there was no model for it. But I was like, how hard could this be just to, and I would have reported and written the story a lot differently if it had been like for somebody other than my myself. Yeah. Uh, just because I went with the reporting that I had, I went and visited Dolly where she lives now and and just use the reporting from that trip because that was also on spec. Like it costs money to go to that place. I had a photographer, you know, shoot really good art for it. That mm-hmm. costs money. I hired a fact checker. That costs money. Uh, so at the end of the day, it was just put, throw it on the website, see what happens, put a PayPal link there. And that was at that moment when people were trying to figure out whether any of this stuff would work and whether it was sustainable. So that was yeah. kind of fun. Yeah. Yeah. And if I recall, like you made some money, not like wouldn't turn a profit considering you hired a photographer and right. everything else, but like people did. I broke even. Yeah. So some people, you know, I think I said in one uh, interview, like, I don't care if people send a dime, like send what you think it's worth. And sure enough, a little dime came in from, oh, that's rude. from some that's really rude. lovely reader. Yeah. <laughs> but then others, you know, like there were a few people who were like, here's a hundred bucks. Thank yeah. you for doing that story. And it was, it kind of restored my faith in the business in a way that I needed at that moment. And that that's what brought me back, just figuring out how to do stories again. Then I started looking for stories and watching for book ideas and trying to think about where I belonged and wanted to be. And that was it. And that was seven years ago, I guess. Mm. So now at this moment, you have a brand new book out that everyone is talking about really favorably from what everything that I could see. It has a big review in the New York Times book section. And your staff right at the New Yorker, and your profiling major political figures. So, do you feel like you're? I don't want to ask this because it implies that I'm trying to like trigger one of these. But do you feel like you're like due for another like Gloucester Spain moment, or that those no. are behind you and now you're like? No, I'm home. Yeah, I'm home. I mean, this is what you want to be at a place where you respect the work that's being done. You respect your colleagues. You learn from your colleagues. You are inspired by them and 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 you're working at this moment in history in particular with the president of the United States declaring war on reporters and on what we do it feels like a renewed calling in a way so it feels like exactly the right place for me and I feel like this is where I belong in this moment and at this place Well, I'm glad that in this moment we could have you on this podcast. I'm glad too, after all these years. Thank you for doing it. Thank you for having me. That is it for this week's Long Form Podcast. I'm your co-host, Evan Ratliff. Thanks to my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer and Max Linsky. Thanks to Paige Williams for coming on the program and to our editor, Janelle Pfeiffer, our intern, Tyler McCloskey, and as always, our sponsors, MailChimp and Pit Writers. We'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running. <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Teen Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. 
Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.